Hello and welcome to this episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, a podcast box set from Energy Voice in paid partnership with Womble Bond Dickinson. The aim of this series is to look at which countries are developing the most sustainable, innovative and scalable energy solutions, what we can learn from each other and indeed who is doing it bigger, faster and better. Over the course of the box set, we've taken a look at how the UK is shaping up in its race to cut emissions and move towards net zero and how this compares with other countries working to similar ends. Today, we're going to be taking a look at onshore wind in the UK and across Europe. My name is Ed Reed. I'm an editor here at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And I'm delighted to welcome Finney McCutcheon, Director of Onshore Renewables Europe for SSE Renewables, in conversation with Chris Towner, partner at Womble Bond Dickinson. In the UK, it's often said there is a de facto ban on new onshore wind projects. But there's a sense this may be changing, not least because of the ongoing energy crisis. In 2015, the Conservative government said it was ending subsidies for onshore wind in order to let the technology stand on its own feet rather than rely on political support. But this manifested in rules that prevented new developments if any local opposition was voiced. But there seems to be political capital now in, in, in supporting new power plans. The Labour Party, for instance, has voiced its support for new onshore capacity. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer saying a, a Labour government would reverse the current blocks of development and going on to note the appeal of these investments as providing lower bills, greater security, good jobs and a stronger economy for the entire country. Now the discussion seems to have shifted to be about community support. Business and Energy Secretary Grant Shapps has said the key test for more onshore wind is, is, is that community support. And recent indications from the Cabinet suggest this is the way forwards. It seems likely that planning power for such facilities will be placed with local councils. Whether this will allow more wind projects to be built still remains to be seen. However, amid higher bills and concerns around energy security, UK sentiments are clearly shifting. Recent polling suggests 79% of people support onshore wind, while only 4% oppose it. In the UK, there's substantially more support for offshore wind, with, with the aim of reaching 50 gigawatts by 2030. And offshore wind avoids some of those challenges around community support, but also achieves higher utilisation rates. Uh, Renewable UK has calculated the load factor at around 40% versus 26% for onshore. And I suppose, you know, looking across uh, across the water to Ireland, where uh, SSE has, has, has got some interest, Ireland too has got uh, some, some, some growth plans in its onshore uh, wind sector, aiming for 8 gigawatts uh, by 2030, in addition to 7 gigawatts of offshore wind. So, so giving onshore wind that, that slight edge. So I think... Um, Onshore wind is, is, is clearly playing a key part in, in Ireland's generation, accounting for about 84% of renewable power in, in, in 2021, although the pace of new installations has slowed recently. Chris, I'm going to start with you. Offshore wind tends to sort of steal those headlines, you know, with the scale of the projects, the scale of the turbines, the sort of the, the, the that, that kind of sheer quantum of investment that goes into it. How important do you see onshore wind as being in that context? Hi Ed, um, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally what I see is, is onshore wind could be very important in, in the overall context of, of how we achieve you know, the net zero goals. And, and fundamentally for each of the countries in, in Europe, there's going to be a balance between the technologies and it's going to vary. You know, what is the ideal outcome for each country, partially based on the quality of the resource that is available to each. But as you're saying, I think what we're looking for is you know, what lessons can, can we learn from each of these? Partially what I see, though, is, is, is that onshore wind could play a very important role. It can be very cost effective. You know, we've, we've seen the prices of it coming down as well. 
over recent years in the UK has not had the support, the political support in England and Wales, potentially, that it you know, may have had in the past. Clearly, there are still projects getting off the ground in Scotland, and I'm, I'm sure Finley can give us more details in, in relation to those. So it's not an entirely GB-wide problem. Focus on offshore wind, and yes, I get the glamour, I get the new technology and everything else, but partially, you know, if you want to look at the comparisons between the two, um, if you're locating an offshore wind farm in the middle of the North Sea on the Dogger Bank, for example, it's going to cost you an awful lot in terms of building new grid to actually get that to the centres of demand. And if you look at the potential rig farms ringed round the, the top of Scotland, for example, you've got exactly the same problem. There isn't the grid there. And so if you say that you know broadly 20 or 25% of the overall cost of that project might actually be in the cost of the grid, if you could actually build a wind farm close to the centre of demand, you know there could be a substantial saving there for consumers. And if the overall aim is to deliver net zero at the lowest cost to the consumer, you know, why wouldn't you be using onshore wind more than we currently are, certainly in, in England and Wales? And that also comes to how you're actually charging for using the grid. If you're charging based on where you're locating the project, again, you're inherently building in additional costs for all of us as consumers if you're locating projects, you know, miles offshore. There are other issues and, you know, it does also, again, vary from country to country. But for, you know, if you look at Germany, it has a relatively limited coastline, relatively limited um, availability for offshore wind and major centres of demand in the south of the country. So, you know, the UK is not the only people or country that has those challenges about how do you actually transport the energy from these large offshore wind projects down through the length of the country and the additional costs of, of doing so. And also I'd flag that, you know, with offshore as well, we are seeing an increasing number of local problems. And so if you look at the challenges to um, local onshore infrastructure for, you know, new substations in East Anglia, then you're seeing considerable opposition to that now as well. And so it's similar in terms of the level of challenge that you're getting to those for um, onshore wind anyway. So presenting um, offshore wind as a panacea you know, would be, in my mind, would, would be a false position to be. And then the final point I'd make is, is that even with offshore wind, you know, we're moving to floating offshore wind, which again indicates presumably that you know, most of the ideal fixed bed locations have already gone and we're moving to new technology and we'll have some of the challenges around developing a new type of technology, albeit in the offshore wind context, coming with that as well with the next generation. Whereas onshore wind is, is clearly a firmly established technology these days, and so therefore should be more investable with cheaper costs of capital. And and, and Finley, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring this to you as well. I mean, obviously looking at it on the sort of the corporate level, how do you how do you feel that kind of uh, competition sort of stacking up between offshore and onshore wind at, at SSE? Yeah, and I think maybe first, Ed, I think um, Chris made an important point that the the effective moratorium on onshore wind w- was England and Wales, and that wasn't imposed in Scotland. So you know, during that window you were raising there, you know, we, we've completely an onshore wind farm at Gordon Bush Extension and we've taken our biggest ever onshore wind farm up in Shetland through financial close in Scotland and and the Scottish government has a target for an additional 10 gigawatts of of onshore wind and we've secured a new consent this year. So in Scotland there really was a pretty supportive policy environment and we definitely see local support um, for onshore wind because communities, particularly in rural areas, have, have seen the benefit of, of what is now millions of pounds of, of community benefit from, from wind. So I think that's important to note, and I'll, I'll just get my uh, sales pitch in now. You, you said 40% capacity factor for offshore wind, so our Viking project on Shetland is significantly higher than that capacity factor. So it, it is very project specific. I think the truth is that the, we, we need multiple technologies because the, the scale of the requirement 
of renewable acceleration of renewable d- deployment to achieve net zero is is so significant that it is going to require onshore wind, solar, offshore wind, batteries, and and other technologies. So I don't think it's an, an outright competition. I mean, I, I was working in offshore wind from 2010 to 2014, and it definitely wasn't in fashion during that period. So I think it's brilliant what's happened to the the, the offshore wind sector. I think the big advantage of of onshore wind is its flexibility and its speed of deployment right the way across Europe and definitely in in Scotland and Ireland and hopefully in the future back back again in England and Wales. You know, onshore projects can be delivered far more quickly. I mean, most of the offshore wind projects SSE is delivering, you know, they've they've been had development processes of at least 10 years, whereas there's onshore projects where it's it's a fraction of that. I think the point Chris made about the fact that they could be much more geographically dispersed makes a big difference as well because you know we, we've got a big operating portfolio and the benefits of geographical diversification are real and they're real for us as an operator but they are real for the system overall it, it is remarkable how different the wind is in in the south of England the north of England and and then as you get up north of Scotland and um, there's big big differences in prevailing wind conditions on a, on a given day and that helps the system overall and and then i think the final thing for me that in the uk context the onshore wind has has a big benefit is that, that we, we talk a lot about batteries and storage and the requirement for more of that as as we move towards net zero the reality is today that by a huge proportion the uk's electricity storage is in Scotland and in Wales in the form of pump storage and conventional hydro. I mean, it outweighs the installed battery storage volume by a factor of at least 25. So if wind farms can be located near the pump storage and the hydro in Scotland and Wales, then there is a very, very real opportunity to to maximise the use and storage when supply outweighs demand of onshore wind and broader renewables. And I think onshore wind is is the key opportunity for that in terms of where the hydro and pump storage is located. Yeah, sure. And I, I suppose there's that kind of question, isn't there, about, um, you know, you, you, you talked about that kind of need for that kind of balance, right, about, about, about the different sorts of technologies required. Which I suppose is, is kind of one of the strange things about, you know, why this, this kind of uh, licensing moratorium has been, has been such an issue, hasn't it? And I suppose that kind of question around where is that government support and, and, and quite how to make it work. But I mean, I suppose sticking with that sort of idea around kind of government support and, and sort of CFDs, which obviously have played a real kind of a role in driving that sort of uh, the, the, the development of offshore wind. Finley, I'm going I'm I'm to address this one to you. Do you think the CFDs are still important in onshore wind? I definitely do Ed, because you know one of the you know SSE is a is a large renewable player, and we don't like to use the word, but we are one of the incumbents. You know we've been in renewable energy for eighty years, but one of the things that has been a great benefit for consumers and governments across Europe is is the increase in competent competition. And I think CFD regimes have played a big part in that. You know, an integrated energy company like SSE has has a a relatively high appetite for wholesale market risk. So we we don't 
we, we will choose CFDs or corporate PPAs when it makes sense, but we're also comfortable to build projects on a, on a merchant basis. We've got three onshore wind farms in construction at the moment. One of them's partially merchant, partially CFD. One's wholly merchant and one's wholly CFD. But for most of, of the independent developers and, and the independent power producers, the, the CFD is much more important. So I think it, it is really critical to maintain that competition, which helps drive down the levelized cost of energy and the volume of projects that are available. I think governments, and we're seeing this um, across Europe, there is a moment of time here where they can maintain momentum or contribute to maintain momentum in renewable deployment. And, and the key lever they have is to allow CFD auctions to respond to the reality of very, very significant near-term capex increases. So we saw in Spain recently, they went out to try and secure about three gigawatts of um, onshore wind projects. The last time they did a CFD auction, it was significantly oversupplied and, and was a very, very low clearing price or average clearing price. You know, this this year, I think it was 50 megawatts after, out of a 3,000 megawatt target. And that is simply because, you know, the cap on the price was too low to enable projects to be viable with current capex. In France, there's an auction this week and the government is, is making great efforts to be flexible around that auction to unlock projects getting delivered next year. I think the UK and Irish governments will face that same question. Are, are they willing and agile enough to respond to the reality of near-term high capex with uh, you know, budgets and strike price caps that enable projects to be delivered? Chris, I'm going I'm to bring this kind of question to you. I mean, thinking about that kind of question around sort of CFDs and, and sort of flexibility, right? I think, I suppose, you know, we've seen some of the ways in which CFDs have really succeeded in driving offshore wind. Do you think that the same is true in terms of sort of uh, onshore wind and, and, and as a sort of a supplementary kind of a question to that? Do you think, as as, as Finley's kind of talked about there, that kind of question around how can governments respond fast enough to obviously the kind of the, 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 the change in, in energy prices like we've seen this year? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really it's a really good question and a, and a, and a really large challenge. Uh, just to, just taking those in, in order. Um, coming back, yeah, I, you know, I'd agree that the, you know, the, the CFD is is important, but people have learned to live without it because of you know, the lack of support there and there has been in, in the UK um, and, and elsewhere. Um, primarily, you know, the problem has been around consenting as well rather than necessarily the, the level of support. And I'd sort of throw in there as well, the importance of the CFD does also partially depend on you know, what the forward price curve looks for electricity. And, and you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, prices have gone through the roof recently and, and it looks like prices may settle over the next few years at a far higher level than, than they were historically. But that then feeds into the challenge of, of you know, civil servants and or whoever it may be across various countries trying to set prices for auctions or capping prices for auctions. And I think you ended up, you know, Finley's very rightly referred to that, that slightly bizarre Spanish auction where I believe not only was there a maximum cap of sort of around the, the high 40s in euros, but it was also secret and developers weren't even told where it was. And, and so <laughs> they were bidding in a, in a world where they didn't know what the restrictions or the rules of the competition were. In, in, the, in a theory, this helped to drive down competition. But as, as Finley has indicated, it basically resolved in the auction not functioning. And I think if there's an overriding message around all of this, it's about that balance between actually achieving net zero 
and at the lowest cost to the consumer. And that if people are getting it wrong at the moment, they're getting it wrong in the sense of you know preserving the consumer from additional costs, but they're not actually delivering the projects or delivering a sustainable pipeline or a consistent pipeline of projects that we actually need to achieve net zero. So uh, personally, I think the focus is slightly in the wrong place. And then that if we were focusing on actually achieving net zero as the primary goal and reducing and limiting cost to the consumer as much as possible while achieving the primary goal, that would be the mindset shift that I think is required. And I think you know the flexibility, shall we say, around how you actually design um, CFD auctions helps there. And if I just use another example, so Germany, for example, you, know, you get your CFD ahead of actually having the planning consent. But that then raises the risk of all of the delays and the challenges we've seen with local support actually getting the planning consent. And so therefore, you therefore run the risk of having to lose the CFD and going back to square one and maybe incurring a penalty for having handed back your CFD, etc. So it's actually how you design some of these auctions, to me, isn't actually working at the moment, which is slightly, you know, price setting is part of that. But it's the overall scope of how you make these things work. And I think you know, there should be more focus, as, as Finley was saying, on actually delivering, say, that three gigawatts that Spain was looking for. And then working, you know, the, letting the auction, having done its work itself freely to actually set the price for that, rather than trying to design too many rules to keep the price down in, in a world where civil servants can't keep up with the rapidly shifting prices of steel and everything else that is actually going into the cost of projects, because they're not the experts on that in, in the politest possible way. Ed, I think Chris is, is absolutely spot on there. And, and I think there's a couple of things why that exactly what Chris is saying is so important. You know, what one is that, you know, thankfully this week, after a, a calm and very cold few weeks in the UK, you know, there's a decent amount of wind on the system today and tomorrow. But the baseload power price for tomorrow has cleared at nearly two hundred and ten pounds a megawatt hour baseload. So we need to put low cost in the context we now know harshly how high it can go. And, you know, so even higher auction clearing prices than governments may have targeted a year or 18 months ago, I think, still offer outstanding value. And I, th I think momentum and, and finding a way to, to enable projects to get through FID into construction next year is so important. It's, it's clearly important for developers like SSE who have a high appetite to deploy capital. But probably more importantly, it is extremely important for the supply chain. You know, it is in the public domain that all of the turbine OEMs who have done so much to drive down the levelized cost of energy, all of them quarter after quarter have been announcing awful financial results. They need confidence that the projects and the order books are going to come forward and that they're going to come forward on a basis where they can make a reasonable profit margin to enable further investment. So I think if we focus on 2030 and 2050 and tolerate a hiatus for 12 to 18 months in new projects, because of too much of a focus, as Chris said, on short-term absolute minimum, minimal price, there will be medium to long-term implications of that for the potential of the renewable sector in Europe. Mm. I suppose it, it seems uh, particularly uh, opposite at the time, at this time, doesn't it? Because Obviously, we're looking at this point where, you know, we're in winter, we've had a cold snap, which has been, you know, pretty challenging for the power market. And and, and also at a point when we're, you know, the governments uh, in the UK and, and, and across Europe are talking windfall taxes around how to try and find some sort of a way between securing their, uh, their energy futures, but also, I suppose, uh, tiding over, you know, their voters, right? Uh, because obviously, that is, uh, that's, a, that's a top concern. Finley, do you think that governments are getting getting the right 
right sort of balance and that sort of tax side of things? Do you mean, Ed, in relation to the the, the various market interventions on price caps, etc.? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think first off, it is very difficult to argue against there being urgent market intervention to address the energy cost crisis because the escalation in energy costs has been so extreme and so driven by you know particular circumstances in Europe that you know I think the fact that governments have taken urgent action to implement um, responses and to help fund um, aid for consumers both you know retail consumers and and b2b is makes makes a lot of sense so i think the principle of levies or price caps or 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 windfall taxes i i personally and i think sse would 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 not argue with i think what is absolutely critical is that they're implemented in a way and with as much forward clarity as possible that for new projects and you know I, I, I say this as someone who's hoping to take at least six projects through financial close next year onshore projects that they're implemented in a way that doesn't create a degree of investor lack of confidence that results in projects being held and and I think that's all about as much certainty as as possible as to how they'll be implemented and for how long or in what circumstances you know they'll be extended. So I think the fact that governments have acted that they've acted very quickly I think is wholly understandable and justifiable. I think it's more about new projects and projects that are in construction. How is the implementation that that really? difficult detail that does really matter in terms of investor confidence. And Chris, I mean, what do you see? I mean, obviously, I suppose the interesting thing is that the uh, the UK has sort of got this this windfall tax and, and, and the EU has its own sort of tax, doesn't it? But obviously, they're structured in a slightly different way. So if prices do, do, do go down, does the UK risk sort of losing some of that attractiveness, some of that, uh, some, some of that sort of uh, project uh, investment to uh, other European states? Partially, yes, but I, I don't think it's, it's just other European European states. I'm, in terms of the UK, one of, one of the comparisons I've drawn is, is how the windfall taxes might be designed between electricity generators and, and offshore oil and gas developers, who, are, for example, are getting many more allowances in relation to you know, taking into account you know, the capex they're expending on new projects, which actually comes off the level of windfall tax that they may be paying through, which is why you might actually see relatively low amounts of windfall tax being paid by some of the large North Sea oil and gas developers. But there are no such allowances, for example, in relation to electricity generators. And then the fundamental question would be, why not? And it's actually that you know, the scheme is being designed or have been designed in such a way that you know, you're encouraging investment or allowing investment in, in you know, fossil fuels to be uh, you know, knocked off the cost of the windfall tax, uh, whereas you're not in relation to renewable energy developers such as SSE. And so to me, it's, it's almost, you know, it's actually the competition for investment partially between fossil fuels and, and renewables themselves when you've got the likes of Shell and BP and Total actually looking at investment in renewables, but seeing government policy actually driving them to continue to invest in oil and gas. And it, it seems to be a slightly odd balance in that sense at the moment, rather than also just looking at the sort of the, the pan-European investment in renewables and the difference between the various countries' approaches to that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think this is this is a good time to, uh, to, to pause for the moment, but we'll be back after this short break. Womble Bond Dickinson is a transatlantic law firm with a keen focus on the energy sector. As part of its Rebuild Britain campaign, Womble Bond Dickinson is looking at the energy transition and its role in the UK achieving its net zero ambitions. 
The Bigger, Faster, Better podcast series will explore how the UK performs in comparison to other countries in key renewable technologies. So I think one of the things that we've seen is that uh, local support or, or, or lack thereof is, is, is a clear kind of a blocker for, uh, for, for onshore wind. I think the big question is, is, is uh, support changing? I mean, I think, you know, obviously we've mentioned that sort of uh, the high energy prices. Obviously, there's kind of a newfound question around sort of energy security, which we wouldn't have seen coming in 2015 or, or even, you know, last year. So, I mean, are, are things looking better? Finley, in, in your engagements with with uh, communities, uh, uh, you know, around around Europe, do people receive the, that sort of onshore wind message more positively? It's very different dependent on area, Ed. So in, in Scotland, we have been blessed with that really local communities have have seen the, the benefit, both in terms of community benefit funding and in terms of jobs and support for local businesses of onshore renewables of, over a very prolonged period. So, you know, s- some of our projects have had very vocal local support. And in some cases, because communities have have a perception that the main challenge to the, the project is, is coming from stakeholder groups who, who aren't in the locality. You know, they have completely legitimate, you know, perspectives and concerns, but they're not local. And and so we've had some of our projects have had very strong uh, local uh, support. I think you know the, the picture is clearly different in in countries like 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 England, and also in some other the countries with with high renewable deployment, like areas of Spain, where there, there's competing land uses and and there's maybe some frustration. But we we continue to see exceptionally strong public support for onshore renewables in in almost all of the markets we're present in. I think. Some of the things that can be done in terms of community uh, support for social and economic impact that's really tailored for for the locality. Also, I think in Spain, they, they've they, there are I'm not saying Spain's perfect, but there are some great examples of regulatory changes that mitigate some of those concerns. So in Spain, under the upcoming grid capacity allocation regime there's going to be very significant incentives to maximise the use of um, grid infrastructure, which minimises how much is, is, is required. And that, you know, they've got a regime absolutely clear. Not only can the same grid connection be used for wind and solar co-location, but in fact, you are highly incentivised to, to do that and demonstrate that you're maximising the use of the land and the infrastructure. So I think I think there's tangible steps that that can be taken, but I think the macro picture is there's a very vocal minority that are against it, but overall public support for onshore renewables is very strong. And, and do you think that's changed? I mean, obviously, you know, given the year that we've had since uh, I suppose Russia invaded Ukraine in what sort of late February, do you think that that has had an impact on 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 how sort of I suppose local energy security is maybe more of a priority? Obviously, you know, everyone's sort of seeing higher prices. Do you think that that's kind of coming through on a sort of a local level? I, I think definitely for governments and broader society, we, we, we've had an extremely rapid and extremely jarring reminder of h- how exposed Europe is to imported energy and the countries and regimes from whom we are importing it. And, and I think you see across Europe that that indigenous energy and renewables is indigenous energy 
that the case for that has increased very significantly you know it, it definitely solves or, or provides a, a building block to to solve the climate crisis but the the value of reducing our exposure to imported energy from you know in particular from countries and regimes um where we would probably prefer not to be importing from ha- has gone way up the agenda i think maybe at uh, the risk of being slightly controversial i think maybe just in the in the European context, what I would say is government policy and some of the debate around onshore renewables in England and Wales, particularly England, has been particularly extreme. That is not normal, in my view, across Europe. That the anti-onshore renewables agenda in England is extreme. That we, you know, we haven't seen that in Scotland or Ireland, in Fra- even France, where they're struggling to deploy Spain, Greece, Italy. And I think it's very healthy that what has frankly been an extreme position in England is potentially going to be brought to a, a more sense, sensible central ground. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I'm I'm just outside London, and I think there's a there's a there's a sort of a long running local uh, dispute about building some uh, some some solar panels, which. Um which has been really interesting to see, see sort of play out on that sort of local level. Chris, what do you think? Do you think that England and Wales, do you think, do you think the appetite is, is changing? I, I think Wales is getting closer to it. Um, I think in some parts of England you get closer to it. Um, I mean, very broadly, I, I was intrigued when um, the Trust government proposed lifting the ban on fracking if there was local support. It was one of the first times we actually started having a discussion as to what local support actually meant. Because one of the problems with it has been it's been entirely unclear what, what the heck it actually means. And, for example, in Bristol, we have managed to get away a, a single turbine project where all of the profits from the company are going into the local community. And we got planning consent for that um, off the back of that. It clearly did have local support. But there has been that complete lack of clarity. And I was interested by what Finley was saying in terms of, you know, community benefits and jobs kind of underpinning you know what local support means and also getting people who are supportive to be vocal because i think one of the issues with england as well is that we haven't had you know the people who are opposing it are very vocal and it is a very vocal minority um, but as you showed from the figures you gave it's a minority uh, but they are very passionate about it whereas you know there's a more of a has been more of a degree of ambivalence shall we say personally i i think the picture is still mixed uh, you know, and, and you you touched briefly on solar and i know that's not the main topic but you know we are seeing challenges to solar projects around you know land use and, and also you know cumulative impact coming through on that side as well and as i mentioned in, in the context of east anglia which you know just building on on finley's point it, it may not be too controversial to say it has a large number of conservative mps as well we are seeing a substantial degree of challenge to the onshore infrastructure that is required and so people are challenging the development is the onshore substations and the planning for those that is, is receiving the challenges and, and if people are going to be doing that given that there's what 320 gigawatts in the queue for national grid in the uk there's a very substantial amount of onshore infrastructure that is going to be needed whatever we do you know challenges to that are coming forward and, and potentially going to put you know projects at risk of delay and and or abandonment because of additional cost and so i I do see you know generally people (laughs) it might be odd in england people actually becoming more aware there is or there has been a de facto ban on on, on onshore wind because i think even prior to the current crisis a lot of people weren't even aware that was there and so i think that's come to the fore more which which is helpful but i still think there is you know some entrenched opposition shall we say to it in, in principle and a lot of people mainly on visual impact grounds who, who don't like it but don't actually have a, a, a solution to it or a solution to the net zero issue at the same kinds of costs or you know, don't have other implications as well so I, I wish i was as confident as as, as finley 
Um, but I see the challenges to you know, onshore infrastructure generally creating additional problems. And I, I'm aware there have been similar issues, for example, in Germany, as we touched on earlier about you know, the new transmission lines from north to south that are needed have also run into substantial challenges as well. So I think there is a degree of, of you know optimism out there, but the picture is still mixed. And there's still quite a lot of interested opponents to the you know the overall infrastructure that is needed to get to net zero. And, and I suppose on that note, I mean, I suppose you know, thinking about the sort of the grid side of things and thinking about how much the UK needs to electrify, right, in order to to, to reach those kind of ambitious net zero goals. I suppose that kind of question around grid capacity is, is going to be a real challenge. And if uh, we can't build that sort of massive amounts of infrastructure, you know, to to to, to bring uh, say that sort of you know fifty gigawatts of offshore wind uh, to 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 where it's needed then uh, more local uh, generation is going to be needed. And I think that's going to be a challenge either way, isn't it? Whether it's grid uh, grid, grid capacity, grid substations, uh, or, you know, sort of small scale sort of turbines or, or, or solar panels, presumably. Yeah, no, completely. It's it's, it's finding that balance between, um, you know, the, the various forms of technologies and public support for them and the cost of, of using each in deployment. But also, and Finley's touched on it, is that, you know, it's, it's getting the regulatory regime and the incentives in the right place about, you know, how do you actually use the infrastructure that we've got to the best capacity and so for example you know we've already started very gradually to move from having point-to-point connections for offshore wind where you know, you're saying the capacity factor of 40 or 50 percent whatever it may be but you know that infrastructure is fundamentally underutilized and could be utilized better and we're slowly crawling our way to you know the holistic network design and actually using shared assets for offshore wind um, rather than saying actually the, the the cheapest way of just developing that one piece of cable is to do it as a point-to-point connection and actually looking at the broader picture about how the whole infrastructure is designed. And also there's the fundamental point about timing, about anticipatory investment and getting all of this in place if you're actually going to achieve you know, decarbonisation of the electricity network by 2035, which is part of the roadmap to get to 2050. Is, is how long is this going to take? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think, you know, we've touched on a few of the issues, but I mean, Finley, what do you think the main obstacles are to onshore wind growth? I mean, I think, you know, looking at it kind of holistically, we've run through through a few uh, few problems. Is there anything in particular that stands out to you? So, so I, th- I think what we're seeing a- a- across Europe, I mean, it's the, the difference in the primary challenges is different across markets, but it's the same three fundamentals, which is the speed and effectiveness of the permitting and consenting process. And, and absolutely rightly, in all jurisdictions, the permitting and consenting process is it has to be the route where there is a transparent and robust um, balancing of the interests of different stakeholders. So it, it's not a r- reduction in the effectiveness, but there's no doubt that permitting and consenting process, given the emergency of, of the climate crisis, energy cost crisis, in most jurisdictions should be significantly quicker. The second challenge is, and this is different in different jurisdictions, is around access to grid. It's grid connections, either in terms of their, their securing the capacity and or their cost, uh, i.e. is it viable, or, or just the timeline to deliver it. Um, you know, we, we definitely have projects in the portfolio that could be delivered, everything else being equal, within the next two to three years, but because of grid, it'll be far, far later in the decade. And so the the regime and the allocation of, of grid to projects that will actually deliver is, is really critical because we're seeing that that's not so present in in the UK 
in Ireland, but in a number of southern European countries, there's gigawatts and gigawatts of grid capacity that's been allocated to projects that are going nowhere. And other projects don't have the capacity allocated that could be built within two to three years. And, and Spain, for example, is taking major steps to resolve that. And then the third is what we touched on earlier in the discussion, which is around the investment case. You know, there's no getting away from it. The cost of capital has increased, interest rates have gone up. CapEx has increased very significantly through 2022 for both onshore wind and solar. And we are definitely not in a context where the supply chain is making excess profits, far from it. We know that for sure. So the CapEx increases are real and it's about how do investors either have enough confidence in their ability to access wholesale merchant revenues or that CFD auctions respond to that higher capex reality sure and chris what are, what what are your thoughts what what sort of obstacles do you see for for for, for onshore wind is what uh, finley's saying uh, does that does that ring true for you, what you're saying in the uk yeah no it, it very much does ring true and um, i'm interested that you know finley refers to grid access states in in the late 2020s and you know we're seeing a, a large number in in the early 2030s um and i admit that yeah so grid and the eso are starting to take steps in in terms of queue management query whether they without being rude they should have been doing this some time ago um we've had various queue management um initiatives in the past and and you could see the issue coming even even before the the scotland process led to so many more onshore wind projects in in scotland being allocated and that's not to criticize those projects coming forward but in here just in terms of how we actually manage access to grid and and the planning for grid is 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 a fundamental but yes as as you've kind of touched on i thought the other one i would flag is is the whole political support question and and you know one of the main differences on, on this discussion is the support that finley has been getting in scotland from the Scottish executive has, has been such a different world from what has been coming from Westminster and has made such a fundamental difference in, in, in deployment. So actually having long-term commitment to actually <laughs> allowing infrastructure to come forward um, or actually having clarity as, as, as to the rules of the game would actually you know, allow investors to, to bring it forward. And it is great to stand up you know, and, and say, yes, we want to reduce the, the planning process to one year as they did with you know, the British Energy Security Strategy. But in terms of actually delivering that, there's been, you know, a complete lack of detail and actually a fundamental lack of progress on how you actually do that. And it would, it would be great. It would address the point that Finley was making about you know making planning quicker. But in terms of actually implementing it, we've not seen any of the detail of it uh, you know, over the last 10, 12 months. So it's a case of how you actually do that. Great aspiration, but, but, but where's the delivery? So I think that degree of political engagement and political support, which sort of underpins all, all of the points that, that Finley was making, I'd, I'd get to. And you get other ones. You get you know, interaction with aviation, for example, and things like that as well. But again, those can be resolved. It's speed of resolution. But basically, I think Finley put his finger on the main three. To me, the message underpinning all of that is A, you know, the political support that is there. And B, as I was trying to say earlier, getting this clarity on, on getting the balance right between actually achieving net zero and bringing projects forward, having a sustainable supply chain, and, and minimising on honour year-by-year implications for consumer, whereas I'm not sure that's really the way that we need to be looking at it. And so I suppose kind of, you know, looking for some sort of conclusion, right, some sort of an answer as to uh, as to how things are going. My impression, Chris, and, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that is that maybe England could be doing things better. I mean, I think, as, you, as, as, as Finley said, Scotland looks like it's, it's it's kind of provided that support. Wales is kind of moving in the right direction, but England it feels is is lagging behind uh, behind behind the other states, and 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 also maybe sort of uh, slightly underperforming. Is, do you think that's fair? I, it's very true in the context of onshore wind in particular, and yeah, my message much more would be you know 
be bold. And, and if you want to take the step in terms of you know stealing a march on on investment on on European neighbours, then then being bold and creating an environment in which you know you favoured project delivery over you know limiting every single penny that is spent on on the projects w- would be a way to do it. And put that in the context of the amount that you're paying out um, in, that is in support that is actually going to consumers. Had you actually taken these steps, you know, since 2015, you'd probably have reduced the amount that you actually had to pay out to consumers to provide the support that is needed for them at the moment in, in the current energy cost crisis. And also bear in mind that, you know, as Finley has been saying, the profits for the OEMs in renewables are, are very small stroke non-existent at the moment. And if you look at the profit being made by the gas producers, they're vast. And, and you know, answer yourselves the question, have we got this in the wrong place at the moment? And Finley, kind of uh, giving you a kind of a concluding word, do you think that, that uh, England is, is the less appealing uh, sort of investment destination for sort of onshore wind when, when, when looking at the other parts of your portfolio? I think certainly for, for onshore wind, Ed. And look, I think, I think, the, I think there is a role for for onshore wind in England. But we probably do need to reflect the reality that England is an extremely densely populated, by international standards, rich country. That's not fertile ground for mass deployment of onshore wind, right? Population density does make a difference here, right? So I think where England can make a lot of progress is, is on having... A context where where onshore wind can be deployed in in the right places because there are are areas we have a, a very very good operating wind farm in North Yorkshire at Keedby, um, which is a kind of a, a, a real high performer for us. And the, so there are the correct areas, but but it's the reality is that the the vast majority of of onshore wind in the UK will be deployed in the Celtic areas in terms of Scotland. Um, Wales and, and Northern Ireland, which is obviously in the Irish market. And what we need to be careful of is the, 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 the market reform and the, and the regulatory uh, regimes that unlock battery storage, demand-side response, flexibility in England near the areas of high demand don't inadvertently disincentivize the deployment of onshore wind in those areas of the UK that has the resource, has the public support locally, and has the track record of delivering wind. Because the reality is that the vast majority of the onshore wind that will be deployed in the UK, and we're very positive about it, will be deployed in areas other than England. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I think that's uh, that's that's probably a good point at, at which to, 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 to bring today to a close. So thank you uh, so much, Finley and Chris. I think there have been some really interesting ideas here. I think obviously there's that kind of question around political support and how that's changing. But I think there are also those other factors that, uh, that, we've, that we've touched on, for instance, local communities, and of course, uh, inflation in the supply chain and, and, and quite how to navigate all of these uh, different areas is, is, is going to prove a real uh, point of interest for, for, for companies looking at the market. So thank you to uh, my speakers. Thank you to our listeners. Please let us know your thoughts on this topic through uh, Energy Voice's social media channels or you can email outloud at energyvoice.com. If you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com also. But for that, for today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Outloud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com 
Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.